Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Ryan Huang. Now, a recent report by climate data group Net Zero Tracker has found that most corporate net zero pledges globally lacked integrity measures. By that, we're talking about having detailed plans and regular reporting, as well as setting clear conditions on the use of carbon offsetting. Few firms, if any, can confidently say that they know how they'll be competing negating their greenhouse gas output by 2050. And as the pressure to journey towards net zero mounts, how can companies ensure their pledges are translating into practical results? For more insights, we're joined by Professor Wiseman. He is the Climate and Energy Transition Specialist and Senior Research Fellow of the Melbourne Climate Futures at University of Melbourne. He's also Chair of the Board of the Next Economy, which supports Communities develop and implement just and well-managed regional energy transition strategies. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? Good morning, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So let's start things off first with that idea. Why is there a disparity between corporate net zero pledges, what they are promising, versus actual plans and regular reporting? Why is there this disconnect? Yeah, so as you say, that, that gap is, uh, is a real worry. And I'm sure there are some critics out there who'd say that uh, the reason for that gap is you know, greenwashing and box ticking and, and so on. And there are some companies prepared to say whatever's required to appear to be taking serious action. But um, there's also, of course, a lot of companies with very good intentions to take strong climate action. And they do face some tough obstacles. Um, here's, here's four. Um, being really clear about the legal and regulatory requirements governments are expecting of them in relation to emission reduction targets and plans, um, accessing secure and affordable renewable energy, and I'm sure that's a particularly tough ask in countries like Singapore, mm. accelerating investment in the technologies and infrastructure and skills that you need to build zero carbon industries, and maybe toughest of all, um, strengthening the willingness of investors and customers and suppliers to pay the costs those are all significant barriers, but I don't believe any are insurmountable and all of them need, really, really need to be quickly overcome, as you suggested, if we've got to have any real chance of keeping global warming close to 1.5 degrees. So, yeah, lots of challenges and lots of solutions as well, I think. Yeah, John, could you just maybe help us describe how bad or prevalent you think this situation is and maybe some examples of some of the challenges you've observed by stakeholders on both sides of the fence when it comes to finding that solution, the equitable solution? Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's really important to think about what these challenges look like from, um, from different points of view, from different stakeholders. So for companies, um, I think one of the biggest challenges is not just failing to meet zero net zero pledges or dealing with the risk of stranded assets um, but also we're seeing increasingly severe economic risks of climate related floods and fires and heat waves so there's that sort of challenge but secondly and I think the, the sharp end of this discussion is accelerating the creation of low emissions industries and supply chains and that means access to affordable renewable energy and low carbon technologies and an appropriately skilled workforce. But if we turn to another group of stakeholders, we've got workers and communities, many of whom are also very aware of the need for emergency speed climate action. But they're also focused on tough questions like how do we accelerate decarbonisation and also protect jobs and livelihoods? And 
what can we do to strengthen our capacity to deal with climate-driven extreme weather events? And then you've got governments all around the world facing multiple challenges in designing and implementing zero-carbon transition policies, sure, and accelerating the phase-out of fossil fuels and dealing with the impact of climate-related disasters. Oh, and, um, and by the way, making sure that they retain sufficient public support to be re-elected. And, of course, increasing concerns about global recession and rising energy and living costs aren't making those challenges any easier. But I guess what we need to do in all of that is to stay closely focused on the far greater risks and costs of, of not acting. Yeah, it does sound like it's quite uh, common sense to go green and to make big promises to go greener, mm. you know, to go for net zero. So when you look at some of the challenges you've just outlined, how much is it due to uh, within the company, like politics playing out, different business divisions having different priorities and a bit of friction between profitability versus going green and maybe just a lack of know-how. How much of that is coming to play here? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of evidence that there's still a lot of um, improved understanding um, in a lot of corporations, both about the risks on the one hand, uh, and I think that's, um, that's still a very mixed story in many companies, understanding yeah, the risks of stranded assets, the risks of missing out on the opportunities of the transition, the risks of, of climate change itself. So I think, yeah, that mix of, of, of lack of understanding is important. And uh, I think many of the leading companies are realising that's exactly what they have mm. to get up to speed on. And that there are, I think that the critical point there is, is understanding the opportunities as well as the risks. And we're seeing that in certainly in Australia, many leading companies are understanding that uh, you know it's really in their interest to get on board the the, uh, the journey to what we call down here the possibilities of a renewable energy superpower. Mm. All right, we are in conversation with Professor John Wiseman. He is a climate and energy transition specialist and senior research fellow of the Melbourne Climate Futures at University of Melbourne. Now, looking at this situation and linking it back to that global call to phase out coal we've been getting quite a lot, is this playing out in Australia where we've got, of course, Australia being a big exporter of coal. We've got China as well, you know, using quite a bit of fossil fuels as well. How much of a situation is this where you've got corporates in Australia also going through this um, disconnect when it comes to uh, having to deal with the global call for phasing out coal? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the good news um, around the world, I guess, is that while um, you know, the global phase out of coal and gas and oil is, uh, is still way too slow, Governments in the EU and the US are certainly strengthening phase-out coal targets fast and implementing just transition strategies for coal-dependent workers and communities. And the, the news from Australia, um, I guess one piece of good news is that we have a national government which certainly uh, now seems more serious about climate action. And the Australian business community is now really clear, I think, that coal-fired power is on the way out and renewable energy is the way of the future I think others would still be concerned that Australia's emission reduction and coal phase-out targets are still too low and too slow. But we're certainly seeing really strong government and private sector investment in renewable energy infrastructure. And one good example of that, I think, which listeners may be interested in, is the recent establishment of a zero-carbon economy transition authority in Australia with really high-level business and government and trade union involvement. So, you know, taking a really integrated and coordinated approach. 
And you turn to somewhere like China. Now it's true that China's now the large world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, but China's now also the world's largest investor in renew- renewables with, I think, last year well over $500 billion on renewable energy, and that's you know, four times what the U.S. Uh, is investing in this space. So, you know, it's a good news, bad news story. Um, there's a lot of progress, but clearly that progress needs to be accelerated faster. Yeah, so this has been the target for many governments as well. So I'm just wondering when it comes to reaching that goal of net zero, do you think it's more effective to have more carrots or more sticks, you No know, taxes versus incentives? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think the first part of, of answering that question you know, is to just stay really crystal clear about the speed and scale of action required um, to prevent catastrophic climate change. And so um, your carrot and stick question, I'd suggest four key priorities. I think um, clarity is really vital. So governments, I think, do need to set legislated science-based emission reduction targets. They need to be for 2025 and 2030, not just way up to 2050, They need to cover scope one and two and three emissions and they do need to include clear timetables and plans for phasing out fossil fuels. So that's a point about clarity and I think and certainty and I think a lot of businesses would value that. We need secondly I think um, legislation requiring companies to regularly report on progress um, in meeting emissions emissions reduction and fossil fuel phase out targets and that needs to be backed by independent validation. But on the, if you like, the, uh, the carrot side, we need strong government leadership to mobilise the, the huge public and private sector investment. We need to accelerate uh, the creation of zero carbon industries and economies. And I think critically, we need well-planned, well-funded, just transition policies that do protect the jobs and the livelihoods uh, of coal-dependent workers and ensure that no workers and no communities left be, are left behind. I think mm. it's increasingly clear that that sort of work to support uh, workers and communities, it's important for ethical reasons, but it also makes good strategic and business sense as well. Yeah, John, that's a very good point, right? That need to not leave anyone behind. Right now, we're seeing so much pressure, so much urgency to transition to cleaner energy. There's been a lot of calls to phase out coal. Some banks have been holding back on financing some of the so-called dirtier side of things when it comes to energy. So this brings to question the jobs that are at stake because a lot of these jobs in especially emerging countries could be gone if people just press on. And the question then is how do you do this in a just way to transition from that phase to where you want to be without having to disrupt their lives and livelihoods? Yeah, no, it's a great question and, and really critical, I think. And and what we're seeing now you know, in countries like you know, Germany and Spain, but also I think in, uh, in, in a range of uh, Asian countries as well, this understanding of just how important it is um, to be clear to workers and communities that on the one hand, it's probably inevitable um, that uh, you know, some jobs in the, the fossil fuel industry and coal dependent e- economies are going, to, are going to leave. But so what you need then is a plan. You need a, a well-managed, uh, well-coordinated plan for a, a new kind of economy. And I think we've learned around the world there are three or four key starting points for that. You need to really listen carefully to workers and communities and businesses. You need to draw on their experience and expertise about what the new economic opportunities are. You do need strong, proactive, well-coordinated policy leadership, um, including investing in the 
the necessary infrastructure. But then a couple of other things. I think you need a package of um, adequately funded re-employment and retraining programs for workers. And uh, that's certainly been a key part of uh, the investment uh, in Australia and, and across Europe. And then you need economic renewal and diversification policies, um, which build on regional strength. And that needs to take account of the future of workers, but it also needs to take account of the future of communities. So we need to think about the schools and hospitals and services that communities are going to need as well. Yeah, lots to think about for sure. We've been chairing Professor John Weisman. He's the Climate and Energy Transition Specialist and Senior Research Fellow of the Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne. Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.